Well, good to see you this morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. I'm glad you're all here with us this morning. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. The third and final section of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. You know, you think about the first eight chapters. Man, it's, I love this book. I say that with every book and every verse and every line, every jot and tittle, but I love this book. You know, as we have been making our way has God not just, I don't know, he's done such a work in my heart just going through this book again and just seeing all the promises. I mean, settling the foundation of the first eight chapters. You know, as Paul, through direct revelation of Jesus Christ, speaks to your heart and my heart about all that we need to understand, the promises. You know, I laugh how Paul starts, us. he just levels us all in the beginning. He's like, hey, you're all, you know, we're all wretched. We, we all fall short of the glory of God. Get over it, right? That's kind of Paul. I mean, not so many words, but he's like, but Jesus loves you, and he has a plan. And it's like, oh, thank you, Lord. It just settles you right in, and I don't care what you're going through. In those moments, and I just worship this morning. I mean, those songs that we were singing, I will follow you. Everything is all about you, Jesus. And that just, just, doesn't that just draw you into the right, you know, mind, the helmet of salvation? We begin thinking correctly. It just sets everything right for us. And then we read the next three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, second section of Romans. And Paul turns around and he says, hey, Israel, it's not over for you either. God is a promise keeper. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you just get really excited because if he keeps his promises for Israel... He keeps his promises for you and I. And that just wrecks me. That just wrecks me. Even when I blow it, even when I don't deserve it, even it doesn't matter. God's promises are everlasting, everlasting. And I read that and I come away and I just want to lift up Israel and I want to lift up the you know, believers and unbelievers in this area. And I'm just excited for what God is doing because even though I don't always see everything the way maybe all of us, God is moving today in a world that even declares, you know, that they would rather follow themselves maybe instead of God. God is still drawing. God is still touching. God is still saving. Amen. And now we make our, our way to the last section of the book of Romans. As we, we look at really the practicality here, you know, the practical living, um, knowing the will of God, specifically in the first few verses here that we're going to look at, um, I guess the question is, has anybody ever wanted to know the perfect will of God for their lives? Yeah? Let me ask it the other way. Has anybody not wanted to know the perfect will? Of God for their lives? Yeah, the answer is no, right? We all want to know, God, what do you have? And, and so remember, you know, Paul, verses 34 through 36, kind of left off there and, and just really praising God and recalling the promises and the praises, you know, as he went back and, and he says, for, you know, of him and through him and to him, who's it about? Jesus, right? Him, him, him are all things to who be what? The glory forever. And ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. Amen, right? So be it. God bless you. And so as we see, he begins in verse 1. He'll say, I beseech you. That's, a, that's an interesting term. Let's, let's pray, and then we'll begin here, okay? Father, as we hear even this morning, Lord, the sneezings, the sneezies. Lord, Lord, we know they're not, many of these are not the plague anymore. This is now uh, the sign of spring, Lord, the change of season. Lord, just as the new season's coming in and we're starting a new section of this book, Lord, there's work and there's growth. There's pruning and there's beautiful things happening all around us, Lord. In nature, as we see around us, new trees are beginning to blossom and our nose are getting tickly because of it, Lord, and sinuses and all that stuff that comes with allergies. And, and Lord, as, just as we start a new section of this book, Lord, our, our hearts will be transformed. You're going to do a work on our heart, and there'll be a pruning too, Lord. You, we pray you'll go in and remove those things that of, of ourselves or of humanity and not of you, Lord. And, and God, we, we pray that things that are in our hearts would be acceptable to you, that our lives would be acceptable to you, Lord, that we would follow you. And Lord, be encouraged. Lord, we pray for encouragement here this morning. That, Lord, you meet us in whatever circumstance we're going through. And, Lord, you just... We just rest in that, Lord. We just rest in you. No striving, 
no contention, but just a real perfect peace, God, that you want to give us here this morning. We want to receive it. We want to receive it from your word. Wash our minds here, Lord. Lather and rinse and repeat, God, we'd ask. We pray and ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed. Amen, amen. So we start off with this very interesting phrase or these, this sentence here. It says, I beseech you. Well, parakaleo, right? Parakaleo in the Greek, he starts, I beseech you. Not just a, a common word, parakaleo. And what does that mean? He says, I call, right? He says, why? Because therefore. He's had a series of therefores. If you've been counting some seven or eight as we've begun the book of Romans, and every time he does a therefore, it's a pretty strong significant that he's drawing our attention to something that he, he's bringing us to sort of a culmination point, right? I think of therefore, you know, no life outside of Christ Jesus. Therefore, you know, he, he's been doing this. Listen, here we're going to see this therefore. I beseech you, I call for you, therefore, or I call you to, Brethren, by the mercies of God, not by man, not by striving, but by mercy, that's what it all comes from, the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So what is this idea of a living sacrifice? You're alive. We all, we're all breathing here, yeah? We're alive. What's this idea of a sacrifice? Well, Begin to think about that. He defines it for us. He says, holy and acceptable to God. You know, what, what is your life, your body? I mean, <laughs> your body is a temple to be worshipped, or to worship the living God, excuse me, right? You know, is our body to go out and hang out in the bars? Is that where our body wants to go and hang out? You know, well, some, maybe in the flesh. But is that acceptable to God? Is that holy? You know, what about, um, well, you get the point. I mean, there's places that we ought to, as Christians, go and places we ought not to go, okay? And when you look at this, why is he saying this? Because even our bodies are to be holy, and our lives are to be sacrifices unto God. And I believe, again, that goes back to a lot of what we read in 2 Corinthians 3, um, chapter 3, verse 2, which is, we're living epistles, right? Known and read by men and women. And I think he's drawing us back to this. And then he says something, which is your reasonable service. Just think about that for it. That, that word reasonable there is the word we get logical from or, or similar to logios or lo, logos or logos. Similar like the word, right? But it's, it carries a, a, a connotation of logical. It's your logical service. What's he saying? He's saying, therefore, when you think about your life in Christ, right? Remember, it's been building up to this whole point, chapter 12. Everything we learned about our foundation of the faith, everything we learned about how Christ has a work and a plan in our lives, everything we saw that God's a promise keeper and he keeps his vows, everything that we saw that we're dead to sin, right? We're alive to Christ. We, we live through him. The old man's been crucified. We're to what? Not we were to walk in the spirit to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. All of that, everything that we have just read has now culminated to this point. And and he says, now understanding all of that and understanding what the Spirit of God has done in you, in your spirit, bearing witness, in agreement, understanding all of that now, what you ought to do about it. That's why he says it's practical living. That's why chapter 12 and on becomes more practical living. What do you do about these things? Do you now turn around and go back and run to the gin mill? Do you turn around and begin to live your life that way? He says, no. Why would you do that? Why would you go back to the latter things. Why would you go back, you know, to the drugs, to the cocaine, to the, to the you know, all that stuff? He says, why would you run back to that? He says, you're the living, you're a living sacrifice. You're blood-bought. You know, don't eat yourself into oblivion. God has a plan for you. You know, don't, don't go to the places you shouldn't be going. You know, be an example. Be, be an example for Christ. And he says, and it's logical, because it's illogical not to do that. It's logical that God has saved you, and he's done a work in you, sanctification, and he's going to finish that work in you, and you should be about your father's business. He's saying that is logical. That would be commonsensical, you know? He says anything contrary to that is really illogical, because it's not really reasonable. Makes sense, right? I mean, he's, he's kind of drawn out the point. It's just 
It's simply logical. Why would you do it? And then he begins to say, and do not be conformed to this world. He's going to give us ingredients about how we're to live and what God is looking for, but also how we may know the perfect will of God, right? We're going to see a a couple things here. But he's telling us there's three steps here. There's three steps in this, in really verse 2. And it's going to end with us um, being good and acceptable to God. Because after all, he began with that, that, that in verse 1, he says that you, your bodies will be living sacrifices, holy and what? Acceptable to God. Now he's going to say, now here's how that works. And do not be conformed to this world, but be, ye tra- or be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. So the first thing he says is don't be conformed. What's he talking about? Do you realize that your mind, you are, first of all, your mind is not the, the mush, the brain, the meat, you know, that meat you got sitting up there, that organ. It's, you're, you're more than just your brain. You, we all understand that, right? This corruption will put on incorruption, it says, and I will go to be with Christ. You all will put on incorruption and go to be with Christ that way. But you are more than your mind and your brain. So it, it simply can't be just talking about cerebrally or, or our mental processes. What's it, what's it talking about here? He's saying conform to this world. He's saying there's a belief system out there. That, whether we acknowledge it that way or not, there, there is. There's a belief system. You're going to believe in something. Jesus put it like this. You're going to serve a master. You know, if you try to serve two of them, you'll hate one and you'll love the other. He said they're mutually exclusive. That's how Jesus described it. And he describes the the belief system in the world the same way. There's a belief system of the world, and then there's a biblical worldview. How does he describe it? Well, he says, well, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you get transformed? We've read it in the Bible before. How do we know what God's will is? How do we transform our minds? How does that happen? By the reading of the word. It's the word that does the transformation, right? How is it doing the transforming? Because when we don't acknowledge or believe in the things of this world, the world system, but we acknowledge the biblical worldview or perspective, we begin to have our minds washed and our hearts transformed. Have you ever experienced that where, you know, things can get pretty you know, fast going at work or wherever, and you just, you really start to kind of go on autopilot. You got a lot to do. You got a lot of projects. And you next thing you know, you're going pretty fast. And then you got the family, you got the kids, you got everything going on. And it just seems to all be hitting you at once. And you're going really, really fast. And you're trying to get everything done. And all of a sudden, little steps, you know, you, you know maybe instead of the hour in the morning, every morning you spend devotionally in, in the Word, uh, it, it gets cut down to 15 minutes because you're really trying to, you know, get to work on time for the project. And then afterwards, you figure, well, I'll do it then, but oh, well, then I got to run little Johnny to soccer or what have you. It just starts to hit you from both ends, you know what I mean? And you, next thing you know, you're, you're finding yourself, boy, it's 8 o'clock at 9 o'clock at night, and oh, I'm just sitting down for the first time, right? And your whole day just went before you, and you're like, what just happened? And then sometimes you sit in bed, and you literally just kind of <laughs> like the old VHS, you know, re- hit the rewind, you know, and you begin to play back your day. And when you start to do that, sometimes during those experiences, often for me, when I, when, I'm, when I get so moving like that, I'm not taking every thought captive, I'm not intentional biblically, I start to realize, oh, you know, boy, I, I wasn't as patient or long-suffering with someone. You know, I, I remember that person came up to me and they said, oh, you know, I just found out this. And, and I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. And, you know, and I, and I tried to comfort them. But then I'm, you know, and I, oh, I should have called them. I should have gone back over and visited. I should have, you know. You know what I mean? You you have those moments where you play them back and you go, I I didn't mean to, uh, I didn't mean to be so quick in my response. You know, maybe I could have been a little more sensitive. You know, maybe, Lord, today as I'm looking through these things, boy, I, I probably said five words to you today. Maybe I didn't spend enough time talking with you, Lord. Really relationship, you know, in, in, in relationship with you, Lord. And, and, and you know it's wrong. 
you know, you know what I mean. You know what's wrong. You know it wasn't your heart's desire. You know it wasn't intentional that you, you, you find yourself in that place. But I don't know about you. On those days when that happens, I sit back and I'm like, what am I doing? I know better. I get in the Bible the next morning. I open up or even that night. And all of a sudden it begins to wash. And then I go out. And if I have a day, again, can be just as busy, but I'm taking time to be in the word and my heart's being transformed and I'm behaving and taking each situation in stride with a biblical worldview. When I get back to the, the bedroom at that night, you know, nine, 10 o'clock, and I sit down for the first time and I rewind the VHS tape and I hit play, many times I just go into praise and worship of God. Because I realized the day ended differently. It was just as busy and just as chaotic. But what I start to understand is that, Lord, I took every thought captive. Lord, I was able to do the things you desired. And God, I begin to worship you because I know I didn't do any of it. It was all by your leading, by your direction. And I see more of God and I see less of me. And then there's a humility and a meekness that comes upon me because I really realize how insignificant and inadequate I really am, and how powerful God is, because as busy as I am, and all as busy as you are, God is still able to accomplish everything he has planned for us, in us, through us, if we're only willing to be those living sacrifices acceptable to God. And see, once I start to realize, I start to go, okay, Lord. And then I play the tape back, and again, I just begin to worship do you know what I mean? Have you, have you ever had those experiences? If you don't have those experiences, I encourage you, before you go to bed at night, take time to reflect on your day and bring it before your Father in heaven. Bring your day before your Father. Is it well-pleasing to him? Is it well-pleasing to him? Well, Paul's telling us, look, don't be confirmed, conformed to this world because if you do this for a pattern of days and days and weeks and weeks become months and months become years, he says, you'll be so far backslidden. You'll be doing things that you don't desire to do. The lust of your flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life will get beyond, you know, you'll, you'll be looking back and going, wow, Lord, I thought I wasn't that far away, but man, I haven't read the Bible in like a year. I, I didn't realize how far from you I was, Christ. How far from you I was, Jesus. And you compromised. I promise you, you'll compromise. Because when you begin to, to, to start to fall into the world and not, not be renewed or transformed by the reading of the word, it's subtle, but it happens. You start to take those things and, and, and you, you think, well, it's, this isn't really a big deal. It's just a, it's just a little... You know, it, it's like when people talk about lies and they, oh, it's just a little white lie. Well, what does that mean? A half-truth is a full lie, right? It's a full-on lie. That's exactly what the devil did when he was trying to tempt Jesus Christ. He used half-truth. He used half of a passage or verse of Scripture. But he left the other half out. He, you can't live our lives that way. But it happens, and if you're here this morning and this has been happening to you, Paul's telling you, hey, that, that one, there's nothing wrong with you in the way of me saying that, of, of uh, like there's nothing mentally unstable with you, if I can say it that way. He's telling you this will happen to anyone when they're not in the word of God, when they're not tra being transformed, when they're not renewing their mind in scripture, that they will be conformed to the world around them. And that's not the plan. That's not the plan, right? We're supposed to be not, we're, we're in the world, but we're not what? Of the world. We're not supposed to be thinking and, and acting. You know, we're supposed to be holy and acceptable to God, a living sacrifice. And he says, by the transform, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. Well, how can you prove something? Isn't everybody looking for truth today? Real truth. We want real truth. This idea of proving here, this, this, this only comes through total surrender. And this idea of proving is that you know that the formula solves. You know, two plus two is four. You can back into it. One, two, three, four, four. Okay, check some. I know it adds up. R squared, if you're familiar with calculus or, 
you know, algebra, an R-squared formula. I can check some, and I can go back, and I can prove out my formula, right? Our poor kids with this new math they're learning today, this common core where they're, you know, 20 steps, and oh, by the way, two plus two is four. How about that? Um, I laugh because I look back at some of the stuff that's, um, you know, we're praying about uh, uh, starting a, a Christian school here. You know, we got a word from the Lord. We, we're, we're, we're registering with the Department of Education. We're in the process of that. We're in the process of meeting with the, the town. So I've been looking at a lot of curriculum, kind of going back and, and examining some of this. Some of you know my background. You know, I, my, my degree was, I have a degree in education. My wife has a degree in education. And so we're going back and looking through this and some of the stuff that I'm seeing that the kids are learning in some of the schools today. And I'm thinking, oh, my. When, I, when it says you can prove, I like that. I want to be able to prove something out. I want that clear truth, right? It says, which is that, what is that is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. There's a promise in that, that you can know the perfect will of God. Well, how, he's telling us when you're in the world, you won't, you're kind of tossed to and fro that way. But when you're in the word of God, you can expect to know the perfect will of God that way for your life because he'll reveal it to you in scripture. That's what he's saying here. So what did we see? There were three I mentioned. I hope you guys are taking notes and you caught something. First thing we saw is he says a life totally surrendered, right? That's the first thing we see here, right? You're not conformed to this world. It's a life totally surrendered, right? The second thing is don't be conformed to what? To the world belief system. Why is a life fully surrendered? Because you are a living sacrifice. And then he tells you, don't be conformed to this world system, which is really a belief system. He's saying, don't be conformed to the belief system of the world. And then third, he says, be transformed by the scripture. What's that word? That word transform is the same word we saw in Matthew when Jesus was up and Peter was up there and there was a transfiguration. Do you remember that, the transfiguration on the mount? That that word transformed is the same word in the Greek. It means a transfiguring, a change. He's saying be transfigured, be transformed. And that's the third thing, by the scripture. And you will be good and acceptable and know the perfect will of God. That's the promise here. For I say through God, the grace given to me to everyone who is among you. Now, he makes sure that he points it back to grace. He makes sure that he points it back to everyone in that it's not about Paul. It's not about him. He realizes that the man's reaction is to find yourself prideful in some ways when you begin to look and go, hey, man, look at me, right? Hey, I'm not doing so shabby or so bad here, huh? How about that? And he's saying, no. He's saying, remember, it's grace. Who gave us that grace? It's a system of grace by God, right? And he says it's available to everyone. He makes sure that uh, he knows that everyone's invited to receive this grace. Remember, we had already read that. The Gentile in 9, 10, 11 also explains that the Jew, when they'll be saved, when they cry out to Messiah, it was because of grace as well. It's a system of grace. He says, not to think of what? Himself more highly. Isn't that interesting? Then he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Every single person alive, all of God's creation, has been given a measure of faith. That means that little babies, as they're born, and you put them in the sandbox, and we've heard that analogy many times, as they're sitting there, they don't know division. They're not turning around and fighting about, you know, well, I believe there's five points in Calvinism. I believe there's Arminianism. You know, how do you play on it? No. What are they doing? They have childlike faith. There's a measure of faith to them. When we introduce our children to God, they're not like, wait a minute. You know, hold on here. Hang on. This sounds, you know, is this, is this made believe? right? No. They readily receive it, you know, and they begin to believe and they begin to have faith and then they immediately want to live it out. Well, I shouldn't, you know, I love watching our little children. I shouldn't do that. God wouldn't like that. Yeah, that's right. What happens? It's adults we have to worry about. Where's that little voice go in the adult where I shouldn't have been so harsh with so-and-so. 
Where's that little voice go? That childlike faith that Jesus Christ talked about. We begin to we begin to trust our own intellect, don't we? That's what happens. We begin to trust the intellect more than we do sometimes. Not us, maybe not all of us, but some do. The Word of God. They begin to doubt. They begin to waver. He's saying, no. He's saying, look, every single person has received a measure of faith, and it's all from God. No one ought to be more, uh, think of themselves better than anybody else. What, what's some of our slogan? We, you know, I say a slogan. What's one of the things I say to you all the time? Nobody here has arrived. You all know it. Why do we say it that way? One, it's biblical, and that's important. Because we ought not to think more highly of us. There's multiple passages in the Bible that say the same thing. Don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. You could be, I mean, I've met some really smart people. You know, I remember I used to, you guys, some of you know my background. I worked at Microsoft. I remember working with Bill Gates. I met the guy. I've, seen, I've spent time, you know, with him. Actually, I spent time with him in Pennsylvania at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. We were there together. Spent, you know, half a day together and everything. And right here in, in the state. And, um... You know, you meet enough people that are wicked smart. You know what I mean? You meet, you've meet, you meet people like that, that you just you talk to them for a minute, and you're like, boy, you're working on a, you're overclocked. Some of you in technology, you know what I mean? Your CPU's overclocked. You got a little bit going, you got a lot going on up there. You know, there's a, one of the guys, maybe we'll invite him, Sarfati. Um, he, he, um, he's, it's not, I'm trying to remember the ministries he's with, for, pardon me for a moment, CRI, I think is creation research and so but something like anyway he comes out a lot of times when he's speaking you know and he'll have 20 chess boards set up for you and he can literally share the word and he's not even looking at the chess boards anymore they you know they've put on blindfolds on the guy and he's playing chess and you're out there and you're you know you're like okay you're sitting right at the board and you're moving and he's just i mean he's working in on a plane that i just don't you know i'm like hey Let's eat. You know, I don't know what else to say. You know, hey, man, that's awesome. You know, think about some of the people that you've met that are just really wicked smart, you know. He's saying, you know, some of the really, honestly, some of the people that I, 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 I don't want to use the word look up to, I look to Christ, but some of the people that I most admire in life that, you know, and I've had a privilege of meeting some quite brilliant scientists, brilliant people in my, in my life. Humility. Almost all of them are really humble the ones that are, are the real deal, you know, the ones that are still striving and, you know, no, you could see them coming a mile away. But, I mean, even, I mentioned Bill Gates, he's a wicked smart guy, you know, very humble guy, not at all what, he's not pretentious, you know, he's like, you want to get pizza? He loves pizza, I mean, hey, let's eat pizza. He's got eight or ten of them, he might get mad at me, eight or ten of them stacked up in his office when he used to have his office, he'd work all night, but he'd have like eight or ten pizza, he's loved pizza, just ate pizza all the time. Just very humble guy. Very, you know, not interested in, you know, just, it. I, I've just had that experience that when I've met people that are wicked smart, you know, there's just a humility to them. And many of them are believers. I would say most of the people that I've met, they are believers in Christ. Because they've come to that point where they've realized, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. You know, the guy that back in uh, Cambridge who uh, debated Dawkins. Um, oh, he's, his name's escaping me right now. But I remember him, he, he, you know, reading about it. He went and debated, and I watched a, a series on him. He turned around afterwards, and he said, you know, it got to the point where as I was debating evolution, he goes, I literally got to the point where there was no logical argument remaining other than creationism. I mean, it's just all pointed back to an intelligent design and creator. He's like, there's nothing. He's like, and anybody who says different, they're lying and they know it. But they're either in it for the money or they're in it for something else. Pride, because they're worried that it's going to come back on them. You know, a negativity, negative name. So again, haughty, right? A haughty spirit because of intellectualism. He goes, I mean, this is a really smart guy. This guy, I mean, he could preach anywhere. He could, nah, he didn't use the word preach. He could teach anywhere in Cambridge, anywhere in England. He could go. He had office. He'd go any university, anywhere and teach. They would love to have him. I mean, he was well-decorated, well-recognized. And I mean, he just 
he just said it like it was. And, and he's like, and so how could you not believe in Jesus? And he said it so matter of fact. And here's a guy that you can ask, ask any equation to. You can, you can ask, you know, anything about crea- you know, creation outside. You know, well, did you know the, 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 the back of a duck does it? You know, I mean, all these kind of things that you're like, what? You know, but he, he's, he's so brilliant. And yet it drew him to Christ because he got to the point where he just said, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible for there not to be a God. And when you look at the canon of scripture and you look at exactly what's prophesied, and you look at the 1,300 different prophecies, 27%, and you begin to go through, you know, and he starts talking about, you know, whether you carbon date and however you do that, he goes, it's impossible for this not to be accurate. 800 years prior, you know, and he starts quoting, you know, MIT mathematicians on statistical and regression analysis that they've done, you know, that says, hey, you know, some of you know the, the, the saying that came out of that. Remember the idea of a quarter being marked with red and then dropped in the state of Texas and then, if, you know, four feet, five feet deep and then picking it out? That came from an actual formula by an MIT professor that was a non-believer that was asked to turn around and do a regression on the statistical probability of all the promises you see in the word of God. And if they were true or haven't come, you know, those that have come past historically proven based on everything, that was the model he came out with. And he did basically what we call a qualitative analysis. You have quantitative, qualitative, mixed mixed methodology. And he took the qualitative, right, which is your betas, your quantitatives, your betas, and your variables like that, solves the regression, points it back to a qualitative statement with a 95 to 99% confidence, CI confidence interval. And he begins to turn around. And as he delivers this, he says, you know what? I'll make it simple. And that was the description he gave, that it would be like filling up the state of Texas. So improbable or impossible for anyone to think, you know, I can't even do the little thing at the arcade with the claw that comes down and grabs the stuffed animal. And that's a little two by two or a four by four. And this thing is the state of Texas, and you're going to find the one red. He says that's what it would be like, you know, to not be Jesus was not who he says he was in the Bible and that he was not Messiah. Everyone was given a measure of faith. You know, it's not a blind faith either. It's really not. Faith is always as good as what you place your faith in. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can rest assured. You know, and more and more as we're learning from archaeology, more and more through science, all it's doing is confirming exactly what the Bible's already told us over and over again. Well, as we look here, he says... For as many, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. He's, he's going to talk about gifting here. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having the then gifts, you can circle that, what are these gifts, differing according to the grace. It's not something that we receive these gifts because of who we are. It's not a haughty nature. Again, not pride. I'm not any better or worse than anybody else. You're not any better or worse. It's the gift that God, excuse me, gives you is for his service, right? So he gives you what you need that is given to us. Let us use them for what? Prophecy. Now let's, you can look at it in a more exhaustive list in 1 Corinthians 12. You can look at it in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 14, 3, and we'll turn there in a minute. But when he says, look, he starts mentioning the first one, prophecy. So what is this here? Well, it's the spirit of truth. That's what real prophecy is. It's, it's comparing and contrasting two things that today people struggle with. What are those two? Well, forth-telling and foretelling. Does everybody understand what I'm talking about? Forth-telling is to tell forth or publish abroad. That's what we see this term here, prophecy, meaning as a spiritual gift. I think of Peter as he would turn around and forth tell of Jesus Christ. He would forth tell that way. He would tell people and broadcast who Jesus Christ was. It was an encouragement, wasn't it? It exhorted, didn't it? People would be lifted up. What is foretelling? Well, foretelling is to provide um, or to define or to tell someone the future. Okay? 
You understand the difference? One's a broadcast. No, what does the scripture say that we see today? Because what about the office of a prophet? What does the Bible describe about the office of a prophet? Well, clearly, who was the last prophet that we see to have, you know, walked the earth that way? John the Baptist. When you look at an office of a prophet, it was John the Baptist. They were not only mouthpieces of God, but they were to, what? Foretell. But then came who? Jesus. Why do you need the office of a prophet that way? Because Jesus came, and he's already declared, hasn't he? Through the word of God, the canon's sealed. There is no more scripture. There is no more, um, that's why the office of an apostle is also closed office. It was to lay the foundation of the church. Now, could you be, can you use the term grayly if I say it that way? I'm kind of making my county my own term that way. Uh, to say that um, it means a messenger sent one, sure. If you're using apostle as, as that way, and, but not as an office. Because the Bible is very clear on what an apostle was too. One that had to, what, walk or be with Jesus Christ. There was like three different things in the book of Acts we read that, if you're going to have the office of an apostle, you had to fulfill. But when that office closed, right, Paul really being the last of that, when we see that office close there, what happened? Well, we also know that we don't expect somebody else tomorrow to turn around and say, I've got a new book of the Bible. Because everything's been given to us already. It's all through Jesus Christ. Even Revelation, right? John. He gave us direct revelation of Jesus Christ. We know prophetically what will be, and Jesus is the author of that. We no longer look to an Elijah. We no longer look to a John the Baptist, a forerunner, that was to prepare the way for the one that would come, Messiah. But if that wasn't enough, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14 and 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and let's look at verse 3. Because there's a lot of confusion in the church today about prophecy and the office of a prophet. I'm not saying there's not prophets and prophetesses. You know, I'm not saying that people don't walk around and are prophets and prophetesses, but not in the, that's more foretelling, not in foretelling. Not in foretelling. Why do I say that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and let's look at verse 3. It tells us what, what somebody who prophecy, you know, prophesies uh, does. And this is all, and you can read again 1 Corinthians 12 if you want to read about the spiritual gifts. And, you know, even if you backed up to, you know, verse 7 of chapter 12, he says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is to each one the prophet all. For one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another the faith of the same Spirit, to another gift of healings by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of the tongue but one and the same spirit works in all. And then if you go down to verse 28 of chapter 12, and God has appointed these in the church. We see apostles, we see prophets, teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administration, various of tongues, okay? Then we turn around and we read in chapter 14 as we go through, and, and now they're kind of, he's gonna define, specifically Paul's talking about, you know, maybe in the church, somebody rose and said, hey, I speak in tongues, and therefore I have a more superior gift to you. And he says, no, no, the gift of prophecy is a more superior gift than the gift of tongues, is an example. He, he goes out and he speaks about that. But even in chapter 13, he says, look, even before that, what is the greatest gift of all? It's love, right? It's love. But then he goes in chapter 14, and if you look down, he says, and let's just start at verse 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophecy or prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Do you catch that? See, there's a lot of confusion around the gift of tongues too today. For no one understands him. Have you ever heard someone speak in tongues? Unless you have the gift of interpretation, you don't understand what they're saying. 
However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. He's speaking to God. It's our prayer language. There's times you can go in your prayer closet. I have, and, and the Lord's given me a tongue, and I can speak in a tongue. Okay, great, but it's not something I manifest. It's not something I turn around and go, you know, la, 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 la. You know, you've heard of these schools and these places where they send people, and they tell them, you know, you know, jump, 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 you know, like you're going to start to, that's, <laughs> that's emotionalism. That's, that's a whole lot of things, but that's not the spirit of God. The Spirit of God, when he invokes that gift, it's very peaceable, and it's to do what? It's your prayer language, because he says that the gift of tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Do you see that? Well, let's continue on. But he who prophesies, or uses the gift of prophecy, right, speaks what? Edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Have you ever had somebody come up to you? If you've been a Christian long enough, you probably have. Somebody come up to you in the faith. Hey, brother, don't get on that plane. It's going to go down. The Lord gave me, you know, a dream on this whole thing. <laughs> I, if that's you, and I apologize. <laughs> I, I, the, this, that is not encouraging. That in, not, in no way is edifying me. That in no way is building me up. I'm, I don't know about you. That makes me not want to get on the plane. That does not encourage me, edifying me, or building me up, right? It's not comforting me in any way, right? I'm not comforted by that. I'm scared out of my mind. I, I already hate, you know, flying back as I got to do all that. But now I'm really like, ah, you know. No, what happened? You had bad pepperoni. That's what I, you, you had a bad pizza, bad pepperoni. I don't, you know, I don't know what to tell you, right? But, he says that prophecy speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. I've had that. I've had it here. I've had, uh, in the last few years, a couple people come up to me and say, hey, you know, we had, you know, a dream or something like this, and um, things were getting worse and worse in the world. Evil more was waxing on, and, uh, you know, the Lord's... The Lord's um, he was, in, you know, he was encouraging us because people were needing help and they were coming in and they were getting the word of God. And, and I saw you in the dream and you were teaching and the word was going forward to reach and to help those in the community that they were coming to Christ or they were fleeing. You know, I think of a 9-11, how filled with the churches after 9-11, right? Jam-packed. And people were coming in because they were afraid and they needed the word. They needed truth and they wanted that truth so desperately. And so I had two different people that came in and, and six months apart and I wrote them down and I said, okay, we'll find out if it's, if it's prophetical or not. Well, it, does it come to pass? You know, that's, that's the witness of a false prophet. Does these things come to pass in time? If not, you have to declare that false prophecy. If it's true, then you declare it, well, you're a prophet or the Lord used you as a prophet or prophetess in this particular case. So that's what we see here. That's what we see in the gift of prophecy. So I received that and, I, and, I, and it, it's something that, I could see would be encouraging, right? People coming in, hearing the word of God, being encouraged by that, being comforted. Okay, praise the Lord. Or somebody might come up and say, God bless you. Somebody might come up and say, you know, hey, I, uh, I don't know. I just feel like the Lord coming up to tell me, you, um, you know, I know you may be going through some difficulty, but he promises he'll never leave you nor forsake you. What a word. That's a, that's a great encouragement. Isn't that a great comfort? And maybe God put it on that person's heart when they were praying for you, maybe at home. And as they were praying for you at home, I know a lot of times God has done that with you all, different, different one of you. You know, he'll put on my heart and I'll be praying and all of a sudden he'll give me something and then I'll just start praying. Okay, Lord. And then maybe when I see you, I may not come up and go, the Lord told me, but I just say, how are you doing? How are you feeling here? You know, or something's going on. That's what we see in prophecy. So we see that first gift, right? Back to uh, Romans here. Now, the thing I want you to see through all these, all these gifts, these are all others' focus. Notice that. They're not to draw people to you, and they're not about you. All these gifts are others' focused. So he says, look, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. What about ministry? I, this is a beautiful gift, Right? Let us use it in our ministry. What is this? This is the same word we see that's off the root of deacon or deaconess. There really is no word deaconess in the Greek. It's really deacon, and it means both male and female servant. But 
the idea behind that is that's what it's speaking to. Someone who, who is there to serve. That's their call. That's their office. They have an office of serving, you know, to, to, to serve, to wait tables, to help people, you know. I think of people that come in the church, you know, during the week and maybe they'll take the vacuum. And they'll start cleaning the, the, the church and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll dust things. You all don't know who they are. And, and I don't broadcast it because that's their gift unto the Father in heaven. The Lord does that. But there's different folks in this flock that the Lord, you know, during the week, they bring them in and they put on the music and uh, they might listen to Christian music and they're, they're, you know, bopping around. They never come up and go, you know, I've been serving at this church for weeks now. Not even a simple thank you. How about a thank you? Well, wait a minute. Who are you doing that gift for? Are you ministering unto the Lord? Are you serving God? Or are you, you expecting something yourself like that? Right? But he says, let us use in our ministry. I love that. I love when people come in and, oh, the Lord put it on my heart. You know, I'm going to go upstairs and do this, or I'm going to clean the bath, or whatever, you know, or praise the Lord for that. It's beautiful. He who teaches in teaching, right? Now, this isn't necessarily speaking of a pastor here. We know that a pastor and teacher is one office. Chi in the Greek, we read it over in Ephesians 4. You know, some people call that the fivefold ministry in Ephesians 4. Well, that's just flat out wrong because there's only four there. There's not five. If, if, you use the, you know, if, you, if you look at the Greek, it's four, and it's got a chi in between. Some, 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 four times, and then, by the way, pastor and teacher, because someone who's a teacher that isn't an under-shepherd, that's a problem. What are you doing if you're not exhorting through the word of God? And someone that's under, you know, under-shepherd, or someone that's, you get the point. If you're a pastor, you're a teacher, you're, you're, you're conversed, right? It goes both ways, right? But it says, he who teaches in teaching. Well, I look at this, you know, look at the, all those that teach in children's ministry. They're all utilizing this gift. God's given them the gift. They teach in children's ministry, teen ministry, men's ministry, all the different ministries around the church that, that require a teaching. God gives this gift. He who exhorts in exhortation. That's a great gift, right? Who, he who is an encourager. Think of somebody in Scripture we read in the book of Acts that was given this gift. We call him the son of encouragement. Barnabas. A lot of times in church, when a guy hears about a need or a lady hears about a need for somebody, maybe they go back to one of the pastors or one of the elders and says, hey, you know, I heard this person lost their job. You know, here, we want to help them out with the mortgage or something like that. But we don't want anybody to know. Can you just make sure that person gets what they need? We want to bless them. That's an encourager. We call that the gift of Barnabas or the son of, of encouragement. And a lot of times they'll write a Barnabas card. And they'll just say, hey, from Barnabas. And people know in the faith what they're talking about. That was meant to be an encouragement, right? It's beautiful. They don't want any credit. They're just, it's all unto the Lord. He who gives, look at that. There's a ministry for giving. There's people on their heart that, that they want to give, and they're not giving, oh, I have to give. It's, it's cheerful giving. God has given them an increase. They give of that increase, and God has put it on their heart to do that. It says with liberality, right? It's not begrudgingly. It's not being forced. It's the Lord comes up and says, hey, there's a need here. And not just at the church. There's a, this could be used anywhere. You could, you know, outside of the church, you're walking around and you hear, you know, you're at the checkout line and somebody's short a few dollars. I, I got their groceries. Just go ahead. Have a beautiful day. God bless you. Jesus loves you. That's, that's the gift it gives. That's, that's what we see here, right? He who leads. There are some that have this gift, Right? There's some that clearly don't. There's some that come up and go, we need to start a ministry for this. I love those conversations when you come in and say, Pastor, Lord's Lord, we need to do this ministry. Great. Are you going to lead that ministry? Oh, yeah. And you know they can't lead that ministry. And, but you're like, okay, well, who's going to be the one that's going to lead? Who has the gift of leads, right? Who's the one that has that gift of administration? Right? You'll see that. That doesn't mean that God didn't give them a word or God didn't give them something you know, the, to, to lead a ministry that way. But maybe they're not the one to be the lead of that ministry, right? It says with diligence. And this is good. I, I especially pay attention to this, you know, pastors and elders. This is a big passage. You know, well, who leads? That's, that's speaking right to our hearts. 
He who shows mercy, right? He, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy. Have you ever met people like that? Man, you just talk to them. There's a lot of you in here like that. You should say, yes, you've met people like that. You're in here. Man, I come up to you and I, I just talk to you and I'm like, I could spend all day with you. You're just full of mercy. You're full of love. And I just enjoy our conversations, you know. I'm wrecked when I walk away from you because I know you spent time with Jesus and we spent time with Jesus just talking to you, you know, together. There's a lot of you like that. And you know I'm talking to people of mercy, you know, and they just have this desire and they're just so merciful. They just, they want to constantly give and they give of their heart. They're not like, I'm too tired. I love this gift, the gift of mercy. And it says with cheerfulness. <laughs> he just made sure there that nobody's going to come in and be like, yeah, I'll be merciful, but boy, I'm going to be angry and bitter afterwards. You know, I'll treat you nice, but you know, you're going to pay tomorrow. You know, you know, my, my wife shows this gift of mercy to me. My wife shows this gift of mercy to me. You know, a lot of, th- I'm a whiner. I, I don't get sick that often. You know, sometimes I'll get like, you know, plagues here or there. I don't get sick that often, but when I do get sick, man, I am a whiner, like with a head cold. You guys, we all know that. I'll be, I'll be like, I'll come right up to you and be like, I don't feel good today. Can, can you rub my hand? You know, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a baby when it comes that way, you know? And, um, you know, the other day I got, I got this, um, prostate thing going on, right? You know, as I'm getting older and infection or whatever, my wife turns around and she's just laying, you know, at my feet and she's sort of just comforting me, just having mercy on me. And I just immediately was pieced out. And, you know, your symptoms kind of start to go away a little bit and you're just, it's just such beautiful mercy. And my wife didn't have a, a mean bone in her body. Like, well, I spent all morning with you. So, hey, don't expect dinner tonight. You know, you know what I mean? That wasn't, that wasn't the conversation. It was real beautiful mercy. And if you ask my wife, do you have mercy? She'd say, absolutely not. And that's why, you know, mercy goes with meekness. It's beautiful. And it says with cheerfulness. We'll, we'll pick up in verse nine next week. You know, our reading will be in Luke uh, this morning. Luke chapter 22. But isn't it beautiful when we, we get to see mercy and, and really all the gifts, the gifts of exhortation, the gifts like that displayed? Those gifts are for service one to another, for ministering to the bride of Christ, to the body. And not one gift is better than another gift that way. I'd ask you to stand and we'll pray and then we'll close with a song. Father, thank you again, Lord. We as your people, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for blessing us. Lord, you've given us forgiveness. Lord, you've set us apart. We are holy and acceptable in your eyes, God. Thank you, Jesus. There's no, there's no fitting words that could ever explain what's going on in our hearts here this morning as we look upon you. Lord, the best we can do is say thank you. Hosanna, praise you, Lord. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd receive all of us right now. Lord, as you prepare for our coming, and Lord, you're coming to call us soon. It's very soon. And Lord, we want to be ready. We're waiting, Lord God. Maranatha, Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, power and through your blood and might.